Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week our guest is esteemed journalist and former presidential advisor and Lincoln biographer Sidney Blumenthal. Now remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicsworldroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Earth Breeze and Stellar Sleep, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Now please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, we're going to be joined today by someone who is going to elevate us, uh, bring much more distinction. Uh, Sidney <laughs> Blumenthal, uh, a great writer, a great political thinker, and the author of a wonderful, wonderful five-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln. Sydney, thanks for being with us. And we want to, you know, you so elevate us. We just want to make you part of the conversation. And maybe we'll get smarter before the, uh, before the day is over. Well, I'm <laughs> going to get smarter, too. Thanks for being, I'm you know, glad let me to be just here. Start. There was a Politico piece this week about the president's brother, Jim, trading on the family name, hustling businesses, some of which was a scam. And whatever Hunter's son Hunter's legal issue is he's done the same. That's happened with other presidents, of course, too. But nothing has led to Biden. Uh, and Hunter, for all of his faults, never, to my knowledge, got a multi-billion dollar sweet, sweetheart deal from the Saudis for appreciation of what he did for them, like Jared Kushner. But let me tell you the worst thing I think this week, and I think this really goes really to the core of what the Republicans are trying to do, it was revealed that Alexander Smirnoff, who was the centerpiece of the Republican charges against President Biden for the, I think, ludicrous charge taking bribes. He was indicted. Smirnoff was indicted. Not only is he a liar, but prosecutors raised the possibility he was a Russian agent. Now, we've heard very little from those who peddled the Smirnoff story repeatedly. Congressman James Comer, Comer who as James Carville has pointed out, probably has an IQ that doesn't quite reach room temperature, or 90-year-old Chuck Grassley, uh, who may be senile, or from Sean Hannity, the Fox hitman, who I think cited him, one account today said 85 times. These were, in the old vernacular, useful idiots. You know, I have to think, though, Sidney and James, somehow, when you put this all together, the Russians and false propaganda and peddling stuff to the Sean Hannity's and the and the, and the Comers and the grassy of the world, I think that, that the hand of Donald Trump has to be in here somewhere. Sid? Well, um, this is, as far as I can see it, part two of um, what was the first impeachment of Donald Trump for um, going to Ukraine, threatening um, President uh, Zelensky, uh, threatening to withhold javelin missiles from him to defend himself against Putin in exchange for fabricated dirt on Biden that was being dug up by Rudy Giuliani, who was certainly in touch with Trump. And here we have part two. And uh, it seems to be part of the same pattern of um, a Russian disinformation campaign trying to uh, interfere in uh, the presidential election. 
and uh, some of the same characters may well be involved. Uh, I'd be very interested to know about Smirnoff's background and whether he's an asset or actually an intelligence agent himself. We haven't quite determined all that. There's a lot more to know, and we never got to the bottom of the first impeachment of everyone involved. So um, what we're looking at here, big picture, is a Russian operation, an op, to, um, to affect uh, the presidential election in favor of Donald Trump. And I think that's indisputable. And beneath that, there's a lot of investigation that needs to be done, and it's not going to be done and, by James And Gold. James, as Sidney said, uh, this is chapter two. It's they tried to beat him the first time uh, by cheating and illicit means and using the Russians. And now they're back at it again for the second time. I know Mr. Carville is outraged by this, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for him to vent his outrage. No. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I, it's so hard to when you digest the reality of it. All right, it, it's like it, it's like anything you know, anything normal politics. They start this. There's zero evidence. Of course, the, the entire story about the prosecutor that Biden went there to get rid of. Everybody in the Western world wanted every this good guy, guy out every, of there. Every good, yeah, was, every, yeah. yeah, every good, yeah, every good, yeah, every, every good guy. <laughs> I mean, he, and they just, they don't, their people don't care. They're told constantly that this guy was investigating Burisma and Biden went over there and got him fired. It, it, it makes it, 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 it's a hundred percent the opposite of true, and. You know, it, 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 you remember, I guess it was Kellyanne Conway talked about alternative facts. And that's just where we are. It's in, it, 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 from a historical basis. Have we ever been in this place before where a huge part of the electorate just demands to be lied to and doesn't really give a shit about facts? Well, Lincoln talked about uh, the debauching of debauchery of public opinion, <laughs> for sure. He he uh, was certainly going on in his time leading into the Civil War and during it. But this is the third presidential election in a row where the Russians have indisputably interfered, and we now know that it's going on right now. We've had two before. And now we're in, we're just at the beginning of the revelations of the third one in 2024. We had 2016, 2020, 2024. Putin has strategic aims to try and create chaos in the in the United States to elect Donald Trump as his handmaiden, uh, to let him do what he wants, and to attack and try and take over Ukraine and possibly other countries in uh in Europe. So we're this is a pattern that we ought to recognize and public opinion which our, my friend Abraham Lincoln referred to as debauched um ought to recognize it. Uh, and um our republican friends very different from the republican party of uh of Lincoln's day to say the least uh are really engaged now in a cover up that's what's going on. That's the real crime going well, on. Well, I would encourage every organization that has investigative reporters, you cannot spend 
uh, too much time on Mr. Smirnoff. There's something there. My guess is those tentacles uh, go not just to the Kremlin, but uh, here in this country too. Because every day, James and Sydney, this is just more and more, it lends more credence to what Liz Cheney has called the Putin wing of the Republican Party. Trump says if NATO countries don't spend sufficiently on defense, he'd invite Putin to invade them. The reaction from most Republicans, Rubio and Graham and others was, well, silence or, you know, yeah, they ought to spend more. And the former Trump aides say if he's elected, Trump really wants to terminate NATO. What would be that? the implications of that, Sid? Well, uh, as John Bolton, uh, Trump's national security, former national security advisor, said, he, he definitely wants to do that. He's heard him say it, and that he doesn't have to actually leave NATO. He can just not act within it and allow Putin to do what he wants. Um, so the danger of that, of course, is that it opens Europe to Russian attacks of all kinds, including cyber warfare against their economy. Um, and uh, it completely destabilizes um, the entire um, European Union, as well as uh, our NATO, who are our NATO allies. And that would destabilize our entire economy and society as well. Uh, so the results will be drastic. There's me, no question about it. Let me ask both of you something, because both of you, you know, very serious journalists in, over the years and involved in many investigative journalism pieces and stuff like this. If, in, the reason that journalists like to do this is because they think, and, and it was true in the past, that something like this would, would really affect public opinion, that they'd have some good. If I'm a top-tier investigative journalist, I don't, and, and I get an assignment, and so I'm, I'm going to work four or five months on this story, 10 hours a day, and I'm going to print it, and it's not going to move anybody. So but why, why go to the trouble? I mean, if, if they found out that, that there was, a, a, which I think there is, some version of a P-tape, some compromise, some, there are probably 10 things that Putin has on Trump, I don't know if it would matter. Well, you know, um, that's the least of it. The, you know, the, right, uh, right. the, the, you know, the mythical P tape about Trump's compromise in Moscow. Look at the chronology that's just happened recently. You know, I've, one thing I've learned in writing history is that chronology is your friend. You learn a lot just by following how events happen and follow each other. There's cause and effect. So, just look at this. Trump says he encourages Russia to attack European nations who are NATO allies, and he would do nothing. This is then followed uh, by the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin, where Putin arrogantly struts, talking about um, how Russian history uh, has directed him to seize Ukraine. And then he, he starts talking about how Poland isn't really a nation. And then he justifies the Hitler-Stalin pact that led to World War II. And then he says, Poland provoked the Nazis. And then Navalny is murdered. There's 
Uh, and in the meantime, Trump has definitely told Mike Johnson, who says he talks to Trump all the time on the phone and then went on a pilgrimage to pay homage to Trump at Mar-a-Lago to block the bill of aid to Ukraine. So these events are not um, happenstance. They're happening in history in real time right now. So I'll jump in. As to, so why, why is it that it doesn't matter? What did it, why, how, how did these people come to like totalitarianism or, or poison a guy to death or say in a country like Poland, it's get distinct culture, history, everything that you could possibly imagine that would make something a country. Why, why did they not care? James, I, I'd love to hear Sid on this because he is uh, really an eminent historian now. Um, I, I think there always was an element there. Uh, and, you know, we saw it with Joe McCarthy. We saw it with others. And I think Trump is a... A, a, a completely evil person. There, there, there's no good qualities to Donald Trump. There were good qualities to Richard Nixon. In reading about Joe McCarthy, even Joe McCarthy had some good qualities that were far outweighed by the bad ones. Trump has no good qualities. But you know something? He is really a very effective propagandist. And he is able to tap into those grievances, those that bigotry, as well as anybody. And I think it was at a, I don't know, at a level, that what you're talking about, if it was a you know, on a scale of one to ten, if it was a five, Trump is taking it up to a nine. And I don't know how you wind it back down. But Sid, you'll know more about this than I do. Well, um, you know, why Trump's followers are in a cult of personality uh, is one of the great questions of our time. And they've now elevated him into a yeah, Christ-like figure so that he can claim to be a martyr uh, and they worship him. He's, he's, he's an idol. Uh, he's a God to them. And they've even given up their own religion to worship him. Um, he's above it. They used to say, well, he's a broken vessel who's doing great things like packing the courts with Federalist Society judges. But now uh, they're beyond that. He's he's godlike, and the and the ninety one felonies that he faces in four trials, um, they see as his uh, persecution by the Pharisees, uh, and so were the evil ones, uh, the press, the media, the globalists. Um, there's a whole worldview that he has created around himself. Uh, for his MAGA base, um, there's still a Republican base, but it's a it's now a minority. You can see it through the Nikki Haley vote, but that's the old conservatism, the old Republican Party, uh, and they are they have their own policies, their own point of view, but it's not a cult. You can disagree, right. you can agree or disagree with them. No, I I think you're absolutely right. I think the reaction the brutal murder of the courageous dissident Alexei Navalny, clearly ordered by Putin, was so instructive and goes to Liz Cheney's point. Uh, Trump predictably said, well, it's just like what they're doing to me. Oh, really? And then let's not just think it's Trump. The Amen chorus weighed in. Newt Gingrich said, 
and I'm, and I'm quoting now, watch the Biden administration speak out against Putin and his jailing of leading political opponents while Democrats in four different jurisdictions try to turn President Trump into an American Navalny. James, I don't really think you see many similarities, excuse me, any similarities between Alexei Navalny and Donald Trump, but that's what the Newt Gingriches and Donald Trumps of the world are peddling, and they're getting away with it. Yeah, you, you think that the people, uh, that that woman that, that the Russians arrested gave $51 to Ukraine? But what, what's her, you think she's going to get a, a trial or hearing, a motion day, a, a jury, an appellate court, anything like that? Get out of here. I mean, it, it's all so goddamn stupid, phony, and, and the... the and again, I'll go back to the depression thing is there are million, millions of people that believe that shit. There was some poll that said 20% believe that Taylor Swift rigged the Super Bowl. Well, that's 65, 70 million people. Well, you get on an airplane, you a good chance you're sitting next to somebody that thinks Taylor Swift rigged the Super Bowl. It's a much better chance you, you, you're sitting next to somebody that, that thinks that Putin is good and Trump won the 2020 election. And the January I mean, 6th just was a crazy protest. ass people. Yeah, peaceful protest, yeah. But a tourist stop. And I, it, I, don't, I not much moves them. It, Sydney, you got any ideas? Of, are these people movable or we just have to wait for the actual tables? I don't think they're movable and I don't think they um, want to hear who Vladimir Putin is and what he does and what his methods are and what his goals are. And they can't comprehend it. Just as I think they don't actually know who Donald Trump really is. They haven't gotten to the bottom of what Al calls his, his evil. Um, they see him as, you know, a successful businessman. Uh, well, we know what that's about after the trial in New York. I just want to say about Putin. About 20 years ago, I met a journalist named Anna Politkovskaya, who was a Russian journalist. And she worked for a, uh, a Russian publication. I met her in Sweden at a conference on the media. And um, she had been reporting on what Putin was up to. Uh, and she told me that she had been in an airplane and uh, she'd been poisoned and almost died. We now know what that sort of thing is all about. And I had a long talk with her about what life was like under Putin and the repressive measures that he was attempting to in, uh, implement. I said, be careful. She went back. Um, on Putin's birthday, she <coughs> was assassinated by gunmen in the elevator of her apartment building. It was a birthday present. <coughs> so that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with, with this dictator. And... Trump, in his own way, you know, looks up to this daddy figure, Putin, who do, he defers to. Even you can see it in his body language when he was with him and wants to be a dictator for a day. So, you know, we can only hope that Americans will recognize that there's an American majority as opposed to a pro-Putin party that's now blocking aid to Ukraine and trying to destroy the Western alliance in the interests of Vladimir Putin. And it turns out... Yeah, Liz Trump. Cheney talked about the Putin wing of the Republican Party, Sydney. It is the 
it is the Putin Republican Party more than a wing because it is the dominant wing now, I think, because that's what Trump is. Hey, I, 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 got, I got a double for you. Why don't you have cleaner clothes and a cleaner planet? You can get both with Earth Breeze, a tremendous product. You know, for a guy like me, it's critical. And this, you should not do this. I'm not recommending you do it. But I'm going to be 80 this year. And I'm a clean freak. I change clothes twice a day. I do my own wash some because I just feel bad that I, I do do so much. So, and I know it's environmentally not sound. It's not good for your clothes. But I just, I got to I gotta have clean clothes. I, I just, I, it's a weird affection of mine. And something like this that at least cuts my footprint down a lot. Yeah, it does. Uh, and I, I admire you for wanting to be clean, James. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know, that. And I'm sure Mary appreciates it, too. Uh, you know, some resolutions are destined to fail, like cutting down on doom scrolling. Luckily, we have a resolution to make your life easier. Help our planet and transform the way you do laundry forever. Just switch to Earth Breeze. Now, we're all sick of buying a huge, heavy plastic jug and getting goo everywhere. The whole process makes me want to procrastinate, which I'm good at doing sometimes. Spills are just the worst. Thankfully, Earth Breeze hurt us and is changing the game with Eco Sheets. Unlike liquid powder or capsule detergent, Earth Breeze looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated laundry detergent. The sheets look sleek and barely take up any space. Just throw a sheet in your laundry and watch it dissolve, hot or cold. It's so easy. There's no measuring, no mess, and best of all, no wasteful plastic jug. Earth Breeze fights stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. Kids or grandkids make that just critical, or if, like James, you change several times every day. Just the other day, it, han it handled tomato sauce with ease. We love the Earth Breeze is dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, free of bleach and dyes. It's perfect for every load, whether it's bedding, towels, or even delicates. Never run out of detergent again with flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel anytime with no hidden fees or penalties. You save a whopping 40% when you subscribe and shipping is always free. Eco sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. Switching to Earth Breeze makes life easier on both you and the planet. They've even donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. Well, I tell you what, everybody. So if you think you're not doing damage, and I've done this a lot before, you go to Costco and you pick up a big thing of, of liquid detergent you throw your back out is so heavy and all of that shit is that's 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 some some stuff in there that's not good for the environment and all of that goes into the whole water system and everything else and you know we've always said on this show and a lot of products we have that this these environmental issues are going to be solved one thing at a time and this i, I guarantee you've been Compare this to liquid laundry detergent, you get a pretty good idea of a period of time exactly how much cleaner this is and how much better it is for all yeah. of us. If it's not for you, you don't have to return it. 
just let them know and get a full refund. No questions asked. And right now, our listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash warroom. That's earthbreeze.com slash warroom for 40% off your subscription. You also can find the link in our show notes. James, I want to turn now to something that is going to be much more uplifting, and that is Sidney Blumenthal's um, really just majestical five-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Sid, I've only read part of, of your Lincoln biography. That reflects my limitations. Uh, not the Well, you not, can't read not, four and not five. The greatness <laughs> of your, well, okay, I've read two, so I'm, I'm two-thirds of the way there, whatever. You know, most of us revere Lincoln. He kept the union together, the great emancipator, perhaps the probably the most eloquent president, the Gettysburg Addresses, like two minutes and 272 words that live for the ages. Uh, but all that was because, as you've written, he was one terrific politician. That's correct. Um, we would have, Lincoln was not a, um, godlike figure. He was not living in the clouds. He was not uh, apart from earth. He was somebody that you, Al, and you, James, would spend a long evening with talking about politics. That's who he was. And he knew everything going on. People described him as a cute politician. The word cute in the 19th century meant really cunning. Um, and uh, he was he he was gregarious when he wanted to be a joke teller, but he was also very silent when he needed to be. And um, uh, he faced the greatest crisis in in our history, and the way he got through it was by being a political genius. And um, the political part is not to be denigrated because. That's the part that saved democracy, and that actually is the essence yeah. of democracy. And people need to recognize it and not denigrate, you know, people involved in politics, working for goals, and people who, you know, have to compromise to get there. You know, Lincoln said, I may be slow, but I never step back. So, you know, thinking about politicians today who are criticized because they're slower, they don't accomplish everything all at once, or the kinds of difficulties they have to face. Uh, Lincoln said, um, you know, I've been controlled by circumstances. I haven't controlled circumstances. So, you know, we need to appreciate and learn how this all works in order to understand our yeah, own lives. And that, I mean, Sidney, that extraordinary comeback he made from the dark years after he left Congress before uh, before he was president, certainly before uh, 1858, was was really remarkable. Yeah, well, um, the short course, he's he's Lincoln in the wilderness. He's um, uh, Lincoln serves one term in the Congress. Um, uh, he's an obscure backbencher Whig uh, uh, from uh, downstate Illinois, central Illinois, and. Um, 
Uh, he'd made a deal where he'd only have one term. So he gives it up. He comes home. He tried to get a, a, pay, a pay, big patronage job, head of the land office, very important job, controlling a hell of a lot of patronage in you know, giving out the land in the United States. And he didn't get it. He didn't have the clout then. Comes home, and he's this country lawyer, you know, wandering around central Illinois on uh, a horse, um, going county to county, uh, arguing in these courthouses. And um, then something happens, um, a great event. It's, you know, the great events happen that change politics. We're living through those right now. The Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court is a, is a an event that's transformed a lot. Um, we'll see if this Putin business transforms things, but certainly the Dobbs decision does. Well, there was a big decision that was made then. It was it was the Kansas Nebraska Act that was sponsored by Lincoln's great rival Stephen A. Douglas, the other senator. Lincoln said he's a colossus. I walk under his <laughs> legs. <laughs> it was the little giant. He was five feet tall. Lincoln was 6'4". But uh, everyone thought Douglas would be president. He wanted to be president, so he passed this bill. He thought he needed to get the Kansas-Nebraska territory, all this vast territory, organized so he could build a transcontinental railroad and he could take credit and that would make him president. And the result of it was they opened the territory to slavery and the whole country just split apart. And Lincoln says, you know, we rose from, you know, from the back, you know, wielding axes. So, so Lincoln is now back in the fray again. Runs, uh, compressing the story, he runs for governor, rather for a uh, senator, Senator Lincoln in 1855. 1855, doesn't sound like an election year, but it was. Now people were not elected by the popular vote, they were elected by the legislature. And um, Lincoln has the most votes, but there are several other candidates. And uh, there's one candidate who's backed by Douglas uh, and the governor, who's a corrupt guy, and Lincoln doesn't want him to win, and he's rising up. So Lincoln throws his votes, even though he's ahead, to the other candidate who's a Democrat. Remember, Lincoln's still a, a you know, he's given up being a Whig, but he's not really a Republican. And he's in, he's moving, and he throws it to Lyman Trumbull, and who's an anti, but he's anti-slavery. So he throws the votes to him, and uh, Trumbull becomes senator. Lincoln's wife never speaks to Trumbull's wife again, by the way. So Lincoln has made the basis of the coalition of the new Republican Party by doing that favor, by sacrificing his own ambition. He's brought in these anti-slavery Democrats, and they create the new Republican Party. <clears throat> Runs for senator against Douglas in 1858. Big debate about the extension of slavery in the territories. They go town to town. They argue back and forth. It's the great entertainment in Illinois. You know, they didn't, there's no TV. There's no radio. They're no great, you know, they don't have rock concerts. Um, they, they go to these debates and these political speeches, thousands, tens of thousands of people, you know, they come day ahead. It's, it's, you know, and, uh, it's a big festival and not needless to say a lot of drinking. And, uh, they listen to these speeches and, um, 
Lincoln makes a name for himself, um, and he speaks against uh, slavery. He's the great voice from the West, as it was. Illinois was in the West. And he, Lincoln uh, is reported in the New York newspapers. These debates are, are reported. The newspapers are very different then. They used to be filled with the, what, the debates in the Congress and real debates and just pages and pages of, of the actual debates um, because he couldn't see TV, couldn't hear it on the radio. He had newspapers. And so Lincoln suddenly makes a name for himself, but no one really knows who he is, even though he spent his whole life in politics, running since the age of 22 for office. And um, he loses the Senate race to Douglas, even though he wins the popular vote, because it's controlled by the legislature. And the legislature decides that by a majority to give it to Douglas because the Democrats win the seats because it's, I know this is a shock to a contemporary audience, but oh, it's no. gerrymandered. <laughs> <laughs> that not. wouldn't happen today. Of course not. <laughs> so Lincoln loses the race by winning the popular vote. And uh, on, his, on his way home, uh, after losing, he slips, he falls in the mud. He says it's a, it's a slip, not a fall. He's very depressed, given to melancholy, they call it. And he decides, um, well, we'll see what happens. He's invited to uh, Ohio. There's an election in Ohio for governor in the state legislature. He speaks, he goes all around the state. Turns out he's a very vibrant, healthy guy. He's a great public speaker. Douglas goes to Ohio He's worn out. The debates have basically destroyed him physically. There, Douglas is not old, but he is a an alcoholic, and he's drinking himself to death. And um, Lincoln, they the Republicans win. They sweep the state in Ohio, eighteen fifty nine. Lincoln's helped a lot. Lincoln comes home. He says to his inner circle, "You know what people say." William Seward, the great senator from New York, is going to be our nominee. Why not me? What do you think? How about that? They go, I don't know. We don't know. What um, Lincoln says, I think this is a very, I think we can do it. Puts to, it turns out these so-called rustics from Illinois were the roughest, toughest, canniest, smartest politicos in the country. They go, and um, he I'll end the story here on this one little anecdote. They send one of their members to the Republican National Committee meeting to determine where the convention is. And um, everyone, all the favorite sons want it in their city. And the delegate from Illinois says, well, we don't have a candidate. So how about Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> and they say, oh, all right, we'll put it in Chicago. <laughs> um, and uh, That was a James Carville of his day. convention hall. <laughs> there were a lot of them then around Lincoln. These were, these were really smart political people. And... Uh, uh, so the, the guy who runs it, the James Carville of the convention, is Judge 
David Davis weighs 300 pounds. <laughs> you know, they're, th- they're, you know, t- they're, they're, they're two James Carvilles. In. <laughs> That's a scary thought. Two James Carvilles. Wow. Yeah. And he see, he, he goes to the Tremont hotel in Chicago and he nails up over the door that says Illinois delegation. <laughs> and they start running favors with, and they're, they're up, you know, I'd say 72 hours without sleep and in and out people from Indiana and Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania running around and they're making deals with the delegations. And uh, Lincoln sends a telegram to David Davis. David has been the maestro of the court circuit where Lincoln had practiced in central Illinois. He was the judge. They would all travel around together. Davis is the great figure. Lincoln would later appoint him to the Supreme Court. And uh, Lincoln sends a telegram. He's staying in Springfield. And he says, you know, make no deals on my account. And uh, Davis gets the telegram and he turns to the other guys in the room and he says, well, he says, Lincoln ain't here. (laughs) 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 And... um, you know, strangely enough, you know, there was someone from Indiana and someone from Pennsylvania and some from a, someone from Ohio in the cabinet. <laughs> and Seward. <laughs> so, and, and Seward, that's another story. Um, Thurlow Weed, the great political boss for, for, of New York for Seward, came with a trainload of a thousand people, including the he- former heavyweight champion of the world, and a lot of drink and literally piles of cash to hand out. And when Seward lost the election, he burst into tears on the convention floor. So, um, but he recovered his composure and was will- and went to Springfield and he was willing to deal. And soon Seward was secretary Pretty of state. Pretty good deal, James Carville. <laughs> So, uh, Cindy, you've been through what I call the station sort of cross of high-end journalism in the United States. I think you started with the Boston Phoenix. You were at the New Republic. People don't remember it used to be a really big deal. You were at the New Yorker. You were at the Today Show. You were at the Washington Post. And you were a senior White House aide. And then you decide – understand, I know this – there have been more books written on Abraham Lincoln than any other single American, and I don't even think it's that even that close. So you decide that you're going to uh, harrow this plowed ground that's been plowed a, a thousand times by some of the most eminent people in the world, and you're going to – what gave you the confidence that – mid-career, you could accomplish something like this after being in journalism the whole time. You're not a graduate degree, you don't have a PhD in history, and you got people like Harold Holzer, who is the dean of current Lincoln scholars, and David Shribman, who has worked for hours, a, a terrific journalist and a very accomplished amateur historian himself. How did you come about this, and what gave you the gumption to just go ahead and do this? Yeah, well, James... I don't think it was gumption or confidence. It was foolishness. It was uh, a kind of madness. Uh, I, um, you know, I just, um, 
started doing it. I could not, I had started doing a work on presidents and race since FDR and trying to figure out how the parties had changed identities as a result of race. And I kept going deeper and deeper into the past and I got to Lincoln. And once I got to Lincoln, I got to the Civil War and then I went deeper and I said, I don't get it. Um, I need to understand the origins of Lincoln. And I got to his earliest part and I was just scratching at it until I could try and make sense of the earliest Lincoln. And I started writing and I didn't stop writing. Uh, and uh, I was encouraged by my friend, Sean Malenz, historian at uh, Princeton, um, said, keep going. Um, and what I found over time, I figured out how to do this and uh, how things worked. And um, what, what I learned is that American politics is American politics and that my skills as a journalist were very applicable here in figuring out what went wrong uh, and what went right and how and what happened. And that if I followed the footnotes, I could go to the original sources and I could find out what was there and see what the academics might have missed because they didn't quite get politics. And I had my own experience, not only as a journalist, but being in the White House and being involved in the presidency, knowing a president, so on, and knowing people like Mr. Carbo. Um, so that was a, a very different sensibility to bring to the writing of history than a lot of academics. And um, so that's how I kept going. I just foolishly kept going and writing, and I am still... Um, uh, engaged in this madness, uh, deep in, you know, in the weeds of, uh, of this stuff. Uh, I just finished a chapter for my volume four on Lincoln and Kentucky, um, trying to figure this out. And it has a deep relationship to emancipation because Lincoln would not move on emancipation, uh, until he, until the whole geostrategic theater of war was secure in the West and Kentucky was secure. He said, you know, I, I, the abolitionists came to him and they made moral cases against slavery. And he said, I'd like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. So it's that kind of uh, understanding of uh, people's motivation. The other thing is, you know, we live in a, we've, you know, we've lived in Washington uh, and we've lived, you know, in other cities, Boston, you know, New Orleans, uh, Pennsylvania, all places, Chicago. I grew up in Chicago. And um, we've learned that people in politics know other people, that it's about relationships. And you have to know who Lincoln, what, who, what Lincoln understood what his 360 world was and what he, Lincoln was a student of human nature. He could, he had x-ray vision. He learned through a whole lifetime how to understand what people's motives were and how to deal with them. Uh, and you have to know who the people are and who he knew. These are not at all abstract material forces. Politics is about real people. 
and people in politics and what they are trying to do with each other. And um, Lincoln was a great student of human beings, of people, as a basis for politics. And uh, he was hardwired for this. Uh, this was his. This was his. Um, his 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 wit, his understanding, his sense of policy, his principles, all that were in the. He would fuse in the service of his politics. So that's that's an insight that has been incredibly helpful to me in being able to write this history. So I'm going to ask you a couple of things that, that we hear about and, and just take us a little bit deeper. I, I can't imagine any politician giving a speech today like the second inaugural. I, I mean, talk to a little bit about, because everybody knows the, the Gettysburg Address, and as they well should. I mean, I know the album was on Memorize. It. But the second inaugural was... A, a compilation of a lot of things in his life and views and, you know, the war and everything. Just talk to us about that speech. Well, let me talk about that speech and, and other Lincoln speeches. Lincoln was always thinking. He was always trying to figure out the, this, the problem. And he was always trying to figure out how you talk to people and um, how you frame it and um, how you, what the rhetoric should be. And um, he's constantly thinking about this and he would distill this through speech after speech after speech. He was his own speech writer. The other thing he was, was a lawyer. So Lincoln's a forensic lawyer. Lincoln wants to win the argument. That's the other thing to always remember about Lincoln. He wants to win his cases and the public is his jury. And um, sometimes he's going to use homely stories. Uh, sometimes he's going to do elevated rhetoric, but he's, he wants to win the argument and he always has an opponent. So, and he wants to know what their case is and he wants to poke holes in it and he wants to defeat it. So looking at Lincoln's speeches, including the second inaugural, you have to look at who's his opponent, who's on the other side, and what have they said? And the answer is, in this, for, for many years, it was Stephen A. Douglas. And those debates reflect that, the great debates in the Senate campaign of 1858. But then Douglas dies. Lincoln becomes, you know, Lincoln becomes president, Douglas dies, and he faces other adversaries, and he faces Jefferson Davis, and he studies the speeches of Davis, and Davis argues that um, the North is responsible, and Lincoln's responsible for the war, and that um, the issue is states' rights, and the issue is the right to secession, and state sovereignty, and that there's a constitutional basis for what the uh, Confederacy did and a legitimacy to it. And um, Lincoln is taking that argument in the second inaugural and he is destroying it piece by piece by piece. 
And remember, he says, and the war came in that speech. And then he explains why the war came. And he puts it on slavery. And, and he explains why it was necessary to destroy slavery in order for democracy to survive in that great inaugural speech. And it is in great part an answer to the rhetoric of Jefferson Davis, which now has been forgotten. But Lincoln, the politician, is, and the lawyer becomes the statesman because he wants to win, and he wants to win the argument. Wow. He, he's, not, he's not doing it for effect. He's not doing it because of moral vanity. He doesn't want to be seen as having had uh, the, the most beautiful flourishes of his rhetoric. He wants to win. That's Lincoln. <laughs> So we'll turn it over to Al Goodwin more in talking about wanting to win. And this is not eloquent, but I think mine, and, and I know it's one of yours, favorite Lincoln quote is, let the thing be pressed. Could you give us the context of that quote? Well, um, Ulysses Grant, general of the armies, has uh, gone through the wilderness campaign. It is a terrible battle, fighting through the underbrush of the wilderness in Virginia, great casualties, 1864. Um, there By are, the way, uh, Al grew up, Al's grandmother was- Orange, right, Virginia. Right, right there in the wilderness. Yeah, right, go ahead. Right there. Continue, right there. please. Yeah, yeah Continue. right there. The hospitals of the North are filled with the casualties of the Union Army. And uh, Grant is called a butcher. Even Mary Lincoln says to, uh, to Lincoln, you know, he's a butcher. And uh, Lincoln's popularity has, has fallen. He thinks he's going to lose the elections, 1864. It's re-election time. And uh, they keep going. And he says to Grant, let the thing be pressed, you know. He wants Grant to keep going. And uh, this is when Grant's in the lines uh, south of Richmond. Um, just keep, you know, go on the offensive. Um, don't stop. Lincoln, uh, interestingly, thought he was going to lose that election and made the cabinet members sign a piece of paper that he had written. And he folded it and glued it. And they couldn't read it. He said, I want you to sign this in the cabinet meeting. And you're all committed to it. I'm not going to tell you what's in it. And what was in it was Lincoln said, I'm going to adhere to the result of, a, of an election, even if I lose. I'm going to do everything I can in the transition to help win the war for the Union. But, you know, um, if I lose, I lose. That's a Democratic election. And um, they all opened it right after the election. They had a good laugh. That was because... Uh, among other things, Sherman took Atlanta. But um, uh, that's a contrast to uh, the current person who claims to be a Republican, uh, who seems to be headed towards nomination this year, a belief in a, in a free and fair democratic election and accepting the result. Did this uh, out to you from President's Day from 
from Sydney, this is the real lesson of the United States compared to what the shit we got with Trump, where he not only was going to accept it, thought he was going to lose and wrote the resignation letters for his cabinet, but stunning that we've come, we've fallen so well, far. Well, I was just going to say, Sydney, um, Lincoln came in office, not a particularly first strategic military thinker, and he made some mistakes and he appointed some bad people, but he learned. And when he turned to Grant and Sherman, uh, that was uh, that was a commander in chief. Yeah, it took a long time. Um, uh, it the whole situation was completely um, t- disorganized as a euphemism in the beginning. I mean, the country was literally falling apart. Um, there were insurrections, uh, state by state. Um, the the you know the size of the United States Army um, at the time of uh, Fort Sumter was sixteen thousand men. It was that was nothing, um, and uh, you know uh, Winfield Scott, who was uh, I believe seventy six years old, uh, was the general in chief. Uh, he had been. He'd won his plaudits as a hero of the War of 1812. He had had won the Mexican War. Uh, And he was actually a a very good military strategist and thinker. And, uh, but, um, you know, there was was no organized army. Bull Run was a ridiculous event. Um, There was no trained army. And they brought in McClellan, George B. McClellan, who had had a West Point background. Uh, McClellan is important and was seen as a savior. It's called Little Napoleon. And the reason is uh, at least half of the officer corps had defected to the Confederacy. A lot of them were Southerners at the beginning of the war. I mean, there was no, they were, the word that Lincoln used for people who, went to the Confederacy, who had taken an oath to the United States and were officers, was traitors. That was the word he used, including Robert E. Lee, and by name. And um, so you got McClellan. McClellan could train an army, but the question was, he didn't like the army to fight. (laughs) He he had what Lincoln said were the slows. And he was very slow. And then he waged this campaign on the, the Great Peninsula War, the greatest armada, uh, military armada, world history invaded Virginia Peninsula. And uh, almost they got within sight of Richmond and then he stopped. Uh, and this is where Lee comes to the fore as head of the Confederate forces. But McClellan also was opposed to Lincoln's uh, political agenda and he was against emancipation and Lincoln had moved towards emancipation and Lincoln um, got rid of McClellan um, after the Battle of Antietam where he did not follow Lee's defeated forces and end the war. Um, But that victory allowed him to issue the Emancipation Proclamation on a note of victory. And it was then um, a year, you know, after after Vicksburg, really, Grant had won Vicksburg that, um, you know, Grant comes east and, uh, and, and with him comes his close friend, 
uh, William Tecumseh Sherman. And, um, and then the great cavalry officer, Philip Sheridan. And we're, we're getting a different look to the war then. And uh, Lincoln also has gained a lot of experience about the military. Well, there's, you know, we could go on forever. Um, Lincoln, Lincoln, by the way, I'll just say one thing, was somebody who had a great curiosity and knowledge of technology in science. We don't think of him that way. We think of him as a hick who comes into office. But actually, he is the only president, I believe, to hold a patent. And um, he uh, spent a lot of time with the head of the Smithsonian when he was president uh, and um, created the you know, National Academy of Science. Um, and he spent a lot of time going over weaponry. So when the first ironclad ships were made, Lincoln sat on the board and he would go to the board meetings and he knew all the uh, intricacies of this and he made sure they were built. Lincoln personally tested each new kind of rifle. He would go to the firing range. You could hear Lincoln firing in, you know, on the lawn of the White House. Um, so that's a different picture of Lincoln. He had a he he was uh, literally down to the nuts and bolts of the guns, um, and um, he gained an understanding of the strategy, um, and he found Grant, which is an epic story. Boy, it sure in and is. of itself. I, I, we could go on for hours. Uh, this is so fascinating. This may be a reach, so you know, stop me if it is. I, I see certain parallels, as different as they were, between Lincoln and another one of my political heroes, FDR, in the sense that FDR was criticized for moving too slowly uh, prior to World War II and said, you know, basically you have to wait till a consensus forms. Similar to Lincoln on... Um, on slavery, uh, had a totally unfit army when we began and mobilized quickly, and uh, was maybe the second most eloquent president we've ever had. Am I just reaching too much there, Sidney? No, I think these comparisons are really um, uh, interesting. Um, you know, um, uh, the movie... I believe it's Abe Lincoln in Illinois, was written by the playwright Robert Sherwood. Uh-huh. And um, it's really about Lincoln going, you know, it shows his personal odyssey, and he, he's going up, he's going to go defend democracy. And Sherwood, after writing that, became the speechwriter for FDR. So um, there's, a, there's a sense um, of the you know, uh, that they're involved in the same project, that they're, you know, that they have the same cr uh, crisis in, a, in, in it that they're facing of, of the fate of democracy. And um, uh, just as Lincoln can't move on emancipation until he he's secured enough, and he's he evolves himself, uh, on this question as a political matter. He had always been anti-slavery. He said, you know, uh, uh, I am naturally anti-slavery. I've always been anti-slavery. If, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. But if he moved too fast, 
the whole thing could fall apart. He said, "For you know, if I had lost um, Kentucky, I would have lost Missouri and Maryland, and we would it would have been too much for us. Wouldn't have been able to sustain it." So for FDR, um, uh, intervention in World War II, as you point out, Al, was very unpopular before Pearl Harbor. A great majority was against it. This is an, um, you know, an isolationist um, uh, majority, uh, and you had um, an America First movement that Trump has has copied and is drawing on. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's the same thing, and Roosevelt has to maneuver. He has to be the great politician to get Lendley's to get some ships to England, fighting the Nazis alone. And they it barely gets through the Congress. Um, and um, he he knows what the stakes are. He 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 write he he forges the Atlantic Charter in 1940 off of uh, Newfoundland on the on the ship with Churchill. He knows what's at stake. He knows what's coming. But the country doesn't. The great majority of the country doesn't. But he, Roosevelt has leadership. And um, and Lincoln had leadership too. And, um, you know, but you can't, you can't press ahead of that. You can lead your public, but if you get too far ahead, you might lose the whole game. And both of them knew that. James, can you think of a better dream than the three of us sitting down one night FDR and Lincoln, and just hearing them, honest to God, on politics. Oh, Sidney Blumenthal, I, you know, I don't think we've ever had a guest like you. It has just been terrific. You've, uh, you really have elevated us. James, you want to add anything? Yeah, I just like, you know, the one thing that Sidney does is, is he understands my chosen profession. And, uh, you know, it, he understands mine too. People need to write, write <laughs> yeah. both, both of ours. And, and people sometimes need to understand that politicians can move only right. so fast. And they can, and, and sometimes they have to build consensus to move further. And that, you know, it's a saying when you teach coaching little league, you got to let the ball come to you. You don't, you don't rush it. And, and and sometimes in politics, you have the hand you dealt with and you just make it a better hand by being a shrewd, smart leader and convincing people. I mean, he, like he pointed out, I think the real lesson here is he wanted to win the argument. All right. He, he, he wanted he wanted to. And Roosevelt kind of knew the same thing. And that connection between the guy who wrote the book and became. Roosevelt speechwriter. I, I I did not know that. It's a historical fact. Yeah, that that I I, I think that's pretty uh, pretty telling. Just one more story before we let you go, because it was I was taught, and I think you and you helped teach me this. Illinois was the boondocks. That was not it was not Middle America. That wasn't the Big Ten. That wasn't that was that was the West, and there was this kind of feeling that you you know still exists today that all the smart people came from the coast and lincoln went to cooper union and sydney because i think this is important for our audience to understand give us 
some context of Cooper Union, what it meant, why he went there, and what did he accomplish there? All right, I'm going to tell you as briefly as I can the Cooper right. Union story. Okay. All right, so there's a group of people in New York. They're called, and they have a formal organization called the uh, Young Men's Republican Club. And um, they are hearing uh, people who might become Republican nominees in this new party who would not be William Seward of New York. This is a group of people that does not like Seward, who has been around for decades in New York, and uh, they regard as as corrupt uh, and who... Uh, they, who carries a lot of baggage with all of them, been in politics a long time, and they want they want to see someone new. So they invite all these people. They've heard of this guy, Lincoln, because of the debates, and they've read the debates in the New York papers. Nobody has seen him. There's never been a picture of him in a newspaper. Nobody outside who hasn't seen him knows what he looks like. <laughs> so they come to the hotel room. No, so the 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 you know the people who are going to escort him to Cooper Union, knock on his door in the hotel. It's a, they put him in the Astor House, the best hotel on Broadway. Knock on the door. Guy comes to the door. He's six foot four. His hair's a mess. He's wearing a black wrinkled suit. Um, pants are too short. Um, and they sort of drawing their breath. All right, we're going to do this. <laughs> First, they bring him, they bring him to Matthew Brady's photographic studio on Broadway down the street. There's the uh, photographer to the stars, the great and the good. Uh, photography is a new medium. Um, just like, you know, the telegraph was a new medium. Photography, they could, you could actually see what people really look like. So they bring him there. And um, Brady cleans him up. <laughs> he combs his hair. He straightens his suit. He pulls the cuff down. He puts him in, behind, in, in front of a fake background with a pillar and a drape and puts his hand on a book. And they take the picture. He poses for five, ten minutes. You, gotta hold, you have to hold still. And then they, they take him off to Cooper Union. And the crowd, uh, there are descriptions of people in the crowd. He delivers this great speech. He starts out slowly, seems to be mumbling, and he builds, and he gets his composure. He's introduced as the fresh new voice from the West uh, by William Cullen Bryant, who's uh, the great poet, who's the chairman of the committee, and also the editor of the New York Evening Post, which is a liberal newspaper, then, anti-slavery newspaper, founded by Alexander Hamilton. And uh, Lincoln... Um, then delivers a great speech about uh, the founding fathers, their opposition to slavery, how uh, the Constitution and why it's constitutional to be anti-slavery, and the whole current crisis, and then what those people who are in this new party must do, and why might uh, why right makes might, as he says at the end, and those who had watched him in the beginning and thought they were watching some Yahoo, some Hick, some, you know, Western hayseed. By the end, one of them said, I was on my, on my 
feet cheering as though, and I, I had heard St. Paul speak. <laughs> so that's the effect that Lincoln had. And the other thing about this is, I think Lincoln knew this, and he would do this time and again, and he knew that people thought he was a hick, and he knew he had this ability, this rhetorical ability. Even though he had a high voice, it would carry, by the way, and, but he had great, he had confidence in, in his speech and his ability to move a crowd. So, and he knew that he could do it by the end. Um, and that's what happens in, uh, in Cooper Union. And uh, I'm just gonna uh, tell one joke now about Lincoln and his ability to move yeah, around. Right. He's in, oh, right. let the thing right, be pressed, ahead, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Lincoln's before a jury and he's he's worried they're going to they're going to make the wrong judgment. And he's giving his closing remarks. And uh, now I just want to preface this by saying a lot of people who were proper people thought that Lincoln was told coarse jokes. So that's the preface to this. So Lincoln says to the jury. He says, my friends, uh, there's a farmer and um, he, he has a daughter and the daughter went into the barn and she saw her cousin up in the hangloft and she saw a boy up in the hangloft and she comes running back to her father and she says, father, says, I, I saw Ellen in the hangloft and she took her pants down. And then I saw Jesse, and he took his pants down. I think they're taking a wee. <laughs> and the father says, well, you have the right evidence, but you have drawn the wrong conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> and, Lincoln, and, and Lincoln turns to the jury, says, you now have the evidence before you. Draw the right conclusion. <laughs> oh, that's great! Oh, what a great that's story! Great. Boy, what a what a what a what a wonderful day for us, James. And on on the president's sure ten day, the Lincoln and the Washington birthdays celebration, we 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 just uh, we aced it with Sidney Blumenthal. Sid, when does let me find a final question? When does Volume Four comes out? Come out. Uh, next year, I hope I'm still writing, you know, um, I'm going to be writing today. Um, and, um, I got to finish this year for volume four. And you'll and come on the podcast. God willing, we're still, we'll, we're still here. Uh, um, I'm, I'm always here with you guys. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. What a great Thank show. Thank you for what a great show. taking Thanks. the time. Thank you, Sydney. Sleep better with stellar sleep. Like I say on many times, I'll say it again, the single most determinative factor, the kind of day you're going to have is how you slept the night before. And anything that you got that helps you get a good night's sleep is going to have a productivity increase that's, I don't know, exponential. Yeah, it sure is. 
Uh, because like you, we all hate it when you're lying in bed for what feels like an eternity, tossing and turning, desperately trying to find that ideal position or making up games in your head so you'll go to sleep. We used to have that every night, which is why we're so glad this podcast is sponsored by Stellar Sleep. If you have sleep problems, big or small, you need to try Stellar Sleep. Stellar Sleep revolutionizes how chronic insomnia is treating, offering the first digital solution to all your sleep issues. What makes Stellar Sleep unique is how their focus on sleep psychology helps you tackle your insomnia at the source instead of short-term solutions like medications or cutting back on caffeine. Stellar Sleep was founded at Harvard by best friends who were both chronic insomnia sufferers and were frustrated by the lack of resources available to help their condition. Since sleep clinics often have waiting lists of 6 to 12 months and are expensive and time-consuming, they wanted to create something to benefit everyone. So many people rely on gimmicks or even just luck to get a good night's sleep. But Stellar Sleep uses the latest science to give you the rest you need after going through their behavioral therapy-based curriculum. It's a total game-changer. You've saved so much time formerly wasting trying to fall, trying to fall asleep. And your spouses are going to be a lot happier without you tossing and turning half the night. 80% of Stellar Sleep users significantly improve their sleep, falling asleep much quicker and getting 74 minutes of additional sleep. Hear that again, 74 minutes. That's a big deal. So if you've got stress, anxiety, or burnout, it's time to give Stellar Sleep a try. Learn how to sleep again with Stellar Sleep. All you do is you head to stellarsleep.com slash warroom for your free seven-day trial. And then it's just $99 a year. Plus, you can cancel anytime within the first 30 days and a full refund. Once again, that's stellarsleep.com slash warroom for your free seven-day trial. Then just $99 a year. Look for the link in our show notes. And now for the outrage of the week. James, you'll recall not that long ago when J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy, about growing up in hardscrabble rural Appalachia, was celebrated, independent, conservative-leaning, outspoken, he called Donald Trump rep, Donald Trump reprehensible, maybe even immoral. Then he chose to run for the Senate and decided to deep six that persona and become a Trump sycophant. He opposes any aid to Ukraine. He even claims there's a hidden provision in that measure aimed at impeaching Trump if he gets back in office. I, I guess he's still looking for the Elvis provision in that bill. He's no critic of Putin and speaks fondly of Hungary's autocratic Viktor Orban. Now, he now suggests Mike Pence was wrong in upholding the Constitution and presiding over the perfunctory 2020 Electoral College count. He also said his leader, the Donald, should disobey any legitimate Supreme Court decisions that are badly decided. His alma mater, Yale Law School, must be so proud. Who cares if he's weird? He tweeted something this week about sex between a dolphin and a woman. It's just that his principles are framed by Jello. Yeah, I, you know, 
if he has principles, <laughs> Jello might be a, <laughs> giving him more credit than he. The mild rage is 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 an outrage, but a general observation. So this whole Hunter Biden thing, I'm, I'm, if you just try to unpack it, you you, you you can't imagine it. And then it was all. Then of course it's David Weiss was of course Merrick Garland had to leave him on it because well. We just had to do that, and then Mary Garland, and then Weiss just cuts a deal, and it blows up in court, and there's something else, and it's all on this Smirnoff guy, who is a proven liar and Russian agent. And how do these people, what I don't understand, if if we had someone as stupid as James Comer, and, I'm, and I mean this, literally if there was a committee chair who was that stupid, they'd kick him off. The Democrats wouldn't stand for that. This this man, he he and Jim Jordan are, are in public stupidity on a level that that is unimaginable. And the, the thing that I find most interesting about this is they just keep their positions. And Fox just goes on like, well, nothing happened. It, it it's just everything blows up in their face, and. No one on their side really gives a shit. And you don't even tell about what's wrong with the country when you got 40% or 45% of people in the country that want to be lied to, that when presented with staggering, breathtaking evidence, they just plow them with their ignorant, asinine views. It's, it, at some level, it, it, it's humorous and depressing. I'm just going to laugh at it because if I think about it, I'll get too depressed. I try to laugh at it, but I too get depressed, James. You're right. It, it, it's just, and you know, why don't Democrats do what they? Because we wouldn't stand for it if we had a president that that green lighted an insurrection. We wouldn't stand for that. It, it this, it's a different. It's not just that the, the politicians are different. They're really de- Democrats and Republicans, and not, of course, a caveat. Not all, and, and but most Republicans I see as great confidence are out of their goddamn minds. James, you don't agree with Elise Stefanik when she said January sixth was just a peaceful protest. And, and by the way, more people agree with her today than did on January the seventh after you saw it with your own eyes. And we were so stupid, we said, well, that'll, <laughs> that'll change people's opinion. And then they had the January 6th committee. Boy, that was, they, was, they did a really good job. It, it, they, they believe it now more than ever did. I, I, there's no, it couldn't have any more evidence than what you see. And at least Symphonic you know, was put to Harvard, like J.D. Vance, if, if that's, that's your intellectual leadership. That's what you got to know. Don't leave out Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz. But no, you're no, no, you're can't. absolutely right. No, oh, Ron DeSantis. Right. I, I, but it's just it's you know that they know better. You know that they, they can't not. I mean, you couldn't be quasi literate and not know that. It, it's it it it's breathtaking. I, and I don't I don't know if it ever get, if it's going to get better anytime soon. Uh, I agree, sadly. And now for our listener questions, always a highlight. Dave James in Seattle, Washington, 
says wants an update on the outlook for third party candidates who might get votes from people who don't like Trump or Biden. And what can the Democrats do to blunt their impact? Well, okay, there are certain things that we go into this election and I'm I'm, I'm very big on this and I'm going to probably write something about it. There's certain basic measurements you look at. You look at direction of the country. That's one. It's horrible. You look at the disapprove or unfavorability of the candidates running. It's never been higher. All right? It just hasn't been. And the third party vote right now is, I don't think it's ever been higher at a comparable time. Now, the, 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 you know, it's, it's a little complicated. It's worth taking a little time. It's some are going to appear on some ballots, some are not going to appear on other ballots. And it, it, to some extent, the stuff is harder to poll than you think on first glance. But there, there's a real yearning for a, a place to park other than with the two major candidates. And that just adds to the unbelievable volatility and unpredictability uh, of the election of 2024. I, you know, I'm not, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen. But I know a lot is going to happen, and, and it's going to be unprecedented, and we've never seen this before. And journalism will be thinking of, of words to describe a, a, an event that is truly unique, and that's coming, I promise you. But which way it turns out, I'm less certain, but the, the fecal matter is about to engage the road. Well, as of February, almost 95% of the surveys say that these third, fourth, fifth-party candidates – candidates take more from Biden than they do from Trump. So we'll see how it plays out. Jay and Columbia, South Carolina ask, should Democratic Party members vote where possible in Republican Party primaries for Nikki Haley, where their votes could be more consequential than if they voted for Biden in Democratic primaries? First of all, Jay, there aren't very many opportunities, actually. The best opportunity was New Hampshire, it really was. And we saw that it didn't really work there. So, yeah, I would do it if I were a registered Republican anywhere or a Democrat, rather. And there was a primary. Uh, I'd turn around and vote for Nikki Haley. Not that I'm a big Nikki Haley fan, uh, but I just think Donald Trump is an existential evil and danger. But uh, I don't think it's going to be of any consequence in the in the pending uh, primaries. I agree 100 percent. But God's sakes, people just want to do something. And if you just want to do something for the fact that you feel it's some kind of a political hygiene, please do it. And I, you know, we're going to work on, we're going to talk on this show about specific things that, that people can do because they want to really want to do something. I'm we're going to get some, we're gonna get to some state the, chairs on and, uh, and, and do that. Right, that's that's right, a really right. good idea. Yes, James. We should do that. Yes. Uh, Barbara from my birth town of Charlottesville, Virginia, ask you, James, if Trump takes over the RNC, which he's doing, and it's money, which he'll get because he's always into money, and it goes into his pockets, which it invariably does, will that mean there will be no money or less money for other Republican candidates? Will it divide their party? Well, my, my friend from Abermall County, Virginia, is very smart, and uh, she is right on the mark on everything. The, 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 you got to understand the the RNC and Republican modern Republican political history. It was always better run than the DNC. It was kind of methodical. Uh, I started dating my wife. She was chief of staff there. They got beautiful headquarters right there 
Capitol Hill. I, I mean, it was a the RNC had a a I don't know mythical, but they had a real status and it was a real thing. And <laughs> he, he just just raped the entire thing, and then putting in he's going to take all the money out of there. There there are people, uh, you know, professional Republicans I call them. That have really like um, that not that many of them, and the public doesn't pay any attention to it. But they really hate the way that Trump is fleecing every fundraising organization in the Republican Party, and the money is not going to candidates at every level. So I mean, in, in one sense, I'd rather he steal it than they spend it electing Republican legislators to gerrymander something. But the the, the question, the observation that our letter writer wrote was spot on. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Bobby in Allentown, Pennsylvania says, can the Democrats tie the border bill to the upcoming continuing resolution? They're going to need Democrats to help pass it. Uh, let's turn the tables on. I think any, I'm not sure they can do it in, in this vehicle. Every chance the Democrats have, they ought to talk about that border bill because that they are in a, in a significant disadvantage right now on the immigration issue, which is number one, two, or three in virtually every voter's minds. And this gives them, you know, it's not an out it's because it's real. Uh, and they ought to point out that this was a bill that was bipartisan, uh, cobbled together largely by a very conservative senator and backed by the Border Patrol guards. And every chance they get, they ought to talk about it and put Republicans on the defensive, if possible, James. Yeah, you know, I think this is a bigger deal than we re- originally thought. You know, because before this, you really didn't have much of an answer. You know, been asylum laws and courts and the backlogs and more, but but it didn't, you know. And now you have something concrete you can throw right in their face. And it's, and it's 100% true, all right. They, it was negotiated. It was all enforcement. It was, as you point out, the Border Patrol backed it. Everybody did, and then Trump said no. And who who elects these people? I, I, I mean, you're sitting there, and it was all in, in New York 3 and everything. It's all the southern border. It's Fox. It's in, okay, well, we listened to you. We we came up with something, and you killed it. And the reason that Trump killed it is because they wanted chaos on the border. Right. That's what they said they wanted. Right. And when they come back and say, right. well, it wasn't tough enough, why did the Border Patrol guards endorse it then? Why did Jim well, Langford endorse it then? Well, 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 if it was tough and it wasn't tough enough, why don't you pass, and pass something else? I mean, you know, the Civil Rights Act, a lot of social – I mean, I just – I'm sorry, something was on the table that your side negotiated, that the Border Patrol endorsed that would help, and you blew it up because Trump ordered more chaos. That's that's just that He simple. ordered you. How in the fuck you can blame you us for anything? You got your instructions from, from headquarters, right? Right. right. Beth in Angola, Indiana, says, Ooh. why, James, are so many former politicians – Republican politicians, George and Jeb Bush, for example, not speaking out against Trump. I realize they won't get through to the MAGA cult, but what about swing voters or independents? Uh, you know, that's an ongoing conversation that you and I have. And first of all, 
it wouldn't they did not don't have any status in the Republican Party. It might help if you put something together and it could affect some independence and you'd have to do it with a you know, with like George W. Bush and some people like that. Uh, you know, Robert Gates and you know, some kind of old line. And, and that 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 could help some. But in terms of the Republican Party, they don't have any any place or any role in the Republican Party at all. I mean, they, they couldn't they couldn't go to the convention. They'd be booed out of out of town. Uh, I mean, the the takeover of the Republican Party and the Republican brand and the Republican ideology and Republican everything by Trump is just stunning. And the reason that you have JD Fans doing what he does, or Lisa Fani doing what she does, or, or, or Mike Johnson doing what he does, that's because it's a it's a Trump cult. It's not a political party. Well, if you wanted proof of that, James, and 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 picking up on the on the very good uh, question that Beth asked, just look at the Texas Attorney General's primary two years ago. A you know Jeb Bush's son, uh, a staunch conservative with a what was supposed to be a great yeah, he's a nice guy. Yeah. yeah, he seemed like a totally... Right. Ran against a indicted... Criminal. Crook, who was the incumbent attorney general, and he got clobbered. Yeah. You know. I, I, I mean, it's uh, it's done. That's it. It's over. And no one... Look, look at Liz Cheney. Like, the most prominent Republican family in... Well, may, hell, maybe in the entire West. All right? I mean, she was... Dick Cheney's daughter's University of Chicago was a, you know, second or third in the House leadership. Shit, she got beat by 50 gonna points. Going to be the next speaker or maybe the next president, one or the other, and look what happened. Yeah, I, I, but but it's, it, it, to talk, the only way to talk about the Republican Party is in the past tense. There's just not anything. That, that's, that's all gone. That's all gone. And I think, the good news is I think that Democrats are, are, are coming to that conclusion. There's nothing legit about this. This is not a party. This thing has been dead for a long time. It's a fucking cult. Jake in Oak Arbor, Washington. I've never been to Oak Arbor, Washington. It sounds like it's on the coast. It's probably on Puget Sound yeah, somewhere. Yeah, probably beautiful too. Uh, Jake wants to know, when are we going to acknowledge that the mainstream media in terms of penetration and impact is now Fox News and the Trump propaganda ecosystem that surrounds it? Jake, I tell you what it is. It's not it, it really isn't the mainstream media. It's not nearly as large as the as the New York Times, and the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal news pages and networks. And so but, 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 but I tell you why it has a disproportionate amount of influence and maybe more. They're not conflicted. They don't. They cover every story from their ideological point of view, their right wing point of view. They don't worry about to say, "Hey, yeah," on the other side. Whereas the mainstream media engages sometimes, I think, wrongly in both sidisms. But even when it's good journalism, you know, they present the context. The the right wing, the Fox News, and those people, they don't care about context. They have an agenda and they pursue it relentlessly. So look. I agree with everything you said, but I, I, I think I want to take it one step further. Their people demand to be lied to, and they will pay to be lied to. Now, I'll give you an example. Now, we, again, by the way, the, in the Dominion smart case, they got the text from all of the, the Fox News people. They knew that Trump lost the election. 
But they also said, if we say that, we're, we're going to lose our people. So it's not. It's not that they just focus on. They affirmatively lie because their people affirmatively want to be lied to. It's the actual. It's the marketplace at work, and that's why I keep saying there's nothing normal about this. You look at, we talked about the James Comer stuff. They don't give a shit. You think Sean Hannity gives a shit, they'll say it like, oh, I said one time, you know, Laura Ingram. And the whole thing is all about stealing and lying. And you can make a lot of money in the United States today by Lying to people because people will pay good, good money to be lied to. Sure will. Look, our our last question is from Daniel. Our last question today in San Juan Capistrano, California. That's a pretty, pretty beautiful place. And he he wants to know, what are your thoughts on the California Senate race and candidates with two open seats? I don't know what he means by two open seats. Uh, Should we worry about voters splitting their ticket? I guess the other seat is up, too, but there's no competition. I think it's a runoff he probably was talking about. Yeah, yeah. The way the California system works is the top two finishers go into a runoff, regardless of party. Right. Um, uh, You know, Steve Garvey, you assume the Republican will get in the runoff. Garvey, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about, but that that's not going to hurt him at all with Republicans. He has no idea about any federal issue. The Democrats are, are pretty split up. And, you know, when you have a party that is powerful as the California Democrats, when you have, you know, so many congressional members, senators, governors, legislators, attorney generals, they all hate each other. <laughs> and th- there's going to be recriminations after, after, after this primary because – they're just going to be – I would assume that it's a safe Senate seat, but Garvey is going to do it. No, I, think it's, a, I think it's a safe Senate seat, and I think it's highly likely that Adam Schiff wins it, uh, which, you know, uh, will we'll, we'll, we'll drive some of those House Republicans crazy. So that's worth it. Right. I mean, that's, I like uh, probably, you know, like uh, – who's the other one running? Uh, Katie Porter. Okay. And Barbara yes, Lee. That's right, too. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, we're at three. And Adam looks like what I see the polls look like he's going to win. But it's pretty sure Garvey will be in a runoff. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Earth Breeze and Stellar Sleep, in the episode show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them, because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You also can enjoy other shows on the Politicon YouTube channel, or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. And remember, please rate the show with a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room plan.